enjoyed all the music this morning. Appreciate appreciate Freddie's song and Pastor Corey and then Stephanie and the praise band and good job. Hey, good to see everybody. Let's see. You guys can listen to them. Well, <laughs> thank you for praying for us as we were away. Missed you last Sunday. I'm sure Scott did a good job with progressing. But, um, it's good to be back. We had something interesting while we were at Cindy's dad's church. They have this ministry um, called Quilts of Valor, where there's this lady who sews quilts um, for veterans. And they had a 105-year-old World War II veteran there that Sunday to receive a quilt. And I thought, man. We were sitting in church, and Cindy reached over to her dad and said, Dad, you going to make it that long? <laughs> He's 90, but uh, anyway, I thought that was really cool. And you know what? None of us know when we will meet him, whether it's 100 or 5 or the next five minutes. But we do not hope as those um, who have no hope. we got to hope, guys. That's what makes it so awesome in the Lord. We are in Nehemiah today as we've been looking at different giants that keep us from entering into the promised land God has for us. And so I'll encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to read aloud the first nine verses as I ask you to stand in our great God's honor as I read the text. Um, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Chantrophades, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will send me timber, give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can worship you together this morning. Thank you, Father, that you set our hearts afire. There's so much around us, and it's so easy for us to miss your blessings, Lord. And God, as we think about this giant of apathy... Father, we pray that you would tune us into your heart, Lord, that we may be in tune with you, and Father, that we may not just live, you know, a life of, eh, whatever, but may we live a life of purpose in Christ, 
And so, Father, as we look at Nehemiah this morning, may we learn lessons through your word of how to combat this giant that wants to steal the joy of the Lord from us. And so, God, just speak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When Rosina Hernandez was in college, she went to a concert and uh, there was a guy that she saw at this crowded out concert who was being beaten by other young men. And she just ignored it. Nobody did anything. She didn't think a whole lot about it until the next day when she discovered that that young man did not survive the beating. He died while he was in the hospital. And she was plagued by that for years. Until one day, she was out driving, and in front of her, a car slid off of the bridge and went into the Biscayne Bay. This time, instead of doing nothing, Rosina stopped her vehicle, and she went and actually dove into the bay. And she managed to help um, a lady get free and open a door. And um, her husband was still trapped in the back and could not get out. And so they came up out of the water, and she began screaming for help. She said, I can't do this by myself. I need help. And by this time, several people had stopped to see what the commotion was about. And she screamed and she yelled and then she even started screaming at the bystanders, somebody get in the water and help me or he's going to drown. And finally one guy jumps in and then another guy jumps in and another guy. And together they were able to rescue this lady's husband who was trapped in the car. And Rosina was on this high after that. She said, I failed once, but God gave me another opportunity to save someone's life. And, and, you know, what happens to us is we look around us and things are happening and we think, well, if somebody else will just step up or if somebody else will do this job or surely there's someone else out there. But that someone else may be you. It, it may be me. This problem is not something that is new to just, you know, our day, our times. As a matter of fact, as you look in the scriptures, there are several examples of this. In the Old Testament, God raised up his prophet Haggai, and they were given a task of building a temple, a place to worship God. But they said, no, this is not the right time to do the job. They got a little discouraged, and so Haggai the prophet preached, he said, the temple is still in ruins. Is it right for you to be living in fancy houses while the temple remains unbuilt? So there was a challenge to the people. You know, guys, we need to get to work. There's work to be done. And then there's the prophet Amos, surrounded by enemies, and yet the people were indifferent to the danger that surrounded them. And so Amos preached, and he said, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Danger is upon us as a people, and yet we're just not awake. And then Jesus, he told a parable called the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. And they should have been waiting 
for the bridegroom to arrive. That was their job. And they missed out because they were not waiting. And they were locked out. And Jesus was giving a warning. Don't miss me. And then in the scripture, probably the greatest example of apathy is the Magi coming to see the king. They've traveled 1,500 miles to see the king of the Jews that was to be born. And King Herod, in his jealousy, went to the religious leaders and he said to them, where is this king of the Jews to be born? They knew the scriptures and they quoted the prophet Micah, Micah 5, 2, that uh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And yet, although these wise men had traveled 1,500 miles to see the king of the Jews, his birth, the religious leaders couldn't travel five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see the Messiah, the hope of the world, and his birth. You know, in Romans chapter 13, we are told to have no continuing debt to one another except the debt to love one another. He goes on down, and in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Rome. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. He's saying, guys, it's time to set the alarm clock as we look around us because our world is falling apart and it's crazy and we don't need to sleep through it because there are broken people out there and they need our help. They, they need us to see them. They need us to wake up from an apathy and be stirred to do what's needed. So as we look at Nehemiah this morning, I want to look at five steps. And I'm not much one into formulas, but I listed as steps because of it's an action plan that we see through this encounter that Nehemiah has. Starting in verse 2, we see that he, you know, he's the cupbearer, which is the one who tastes the wine for the king. It'd be a dangerous job <laughs> because if that's poisoned, he drinks it before the king. But he's also the most trusted one of the king. So they're close. They've built a relationship. They've built a bond together. And the king looks at Nehemiah and he says, Man, you look bummed out. Why are you so downcast? Why are you so sad? Now, Nehemiah, this transpired in Persia, which would be modern-day Iran on our map. And the interesting point I found out, that this particular king was the stepson of Queen Esther. So, you know, just a little interesting history. So we have a Jewish man occupying an important position in a Persian court with a king who certainly has ties and knows the stories of God and the Jews. And he's in this country that he's serving as he loves the Lord in that task. What does he find out? He finds out from some other Jews that the job of rebuilding Jerusalem is not going so well. You see, what did Nehemiah knew? He knew that 50,000 men had already been sent to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city. 
And so in his mind, he thought, 50,000, now that's a great mission trip. That's a team there to get the job done. But he did not receive news that was good news. He received news that was troubling, that was upsetting to him. And he could have just said, nah, I don't know these people. You know, even though um, there's some, you know, blood relatives, some connection there, he could have just said, you know, this doesn't really pertain to where I live now or what my life's about now. But that's not what he did. And I want to show you through the scriptures here what he did. The first thing that he did was he sought to find out the facts, to gather information. You, you see, there's some people out there, they say, I don't want to find out the information because if I find out the information, I might find out there's an obligation. I might get stuck in having to do a job I don't want to do. And yet, we need to know the truth. There's an old proverb that says, he who asks a question stays a fool for five minutes compared to one who never asks a question and stays a fool forever. So here's a guy who begins to ask some questions to find out what's going on. Secondly, he has a godly reaction. Um, in verse 4 of chapter 1, as you go back to the previous chapter, this is after he, is, he has heard this news from these Jews. It says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he heard this news and it impacted him. It wasn't just a set of facts that he heard. It became more than information. It troubled him. He, he began to have a, a passion and a burden that impacted him. So this information became motivation for Nehemiah. We got together Saturday night and had our family time with Cindy's family and uh, her, uh, Cindy's brother and all the kids and everything. So anyway, uh, we were supposed to meet him the next day. We got news the next day that four in the family had broken out in a rash. And they didn't know what was going on and... Uh, I'm just thankful those four did not include Cindy and I. It's kind of selfish, I know. but uh, So I sat around while they were tearing out carpet, trying to find out what they was afraid of, the source of uh, this rash that they contracted. While me being the great uh, brother-in-law that I am, sat and watched basketball. Confession's good for the soul. <laughs> you guys know? Anyway, they ended up pulling up all the carpet, try, trying to find this problem. Why? Because they were suspicious and they had to find the facts. So how, how do you find the facts? Well, you find the facts by trying to get to the source, trying to find out where the problem is, the start of it, the origin of it. You know, that, that's where you start. And boy, that's hard to do today because sometimes it's hard to trust the news that you're receiving. It takes a little work. It takes a little research to try to come to the, find out what is the right information. So, you know, a simple question for all of us. This moved Nehemiah to tears when he heard this troubling news. What moves you to tears? What is it that you hear that's upsetting? What is it that you most care about? That moves us to this third stage here. He gathered information. He had a godly reaction. And that moved him to go get help. 
in the greatest place, God. Prayer, intercession. Uh, in chapter 2, in verse 4, it, it tells us in the text, um, he says that uh, he went before the king of heaven, the God of heaven, to pray. James 5.16 tells us the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Um, there is power in prayer because we connect ourselves with the creator and sustainer of everything, God himself. And um, I don't think this was a long prayer. And by the way, you don't have to have a long prayer. God is not impressed that you can, you know, give him about, you know, a book or even a paragraph. Or sometimes a sentence might be too long. Sometimes the best prayer might be, help. You know, let's just get right to it. And I don't think that in this case there is any evidence that Nehemiah had a long time. I mean, he's talking to the king who can, if, you know, things don't go well. So I think this was a quick prayer, but it was a powerful prayer that went directly to God himself. Now, um, in chapter 1, we actually have some details of Nehemiah as he prayed for this situation. Um, starting down here at verse 5, he says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. I'm going to stop there a minute, and I want you to realize how important it is when we pray that we have the right perspective. Understand who you are talking to. You are not talking to some guy who may be able to make a difference, might have a few contacts, might have a little networking going on. You're talking to the awesome God of heaven who can move everything, who can change everything. Man, he spoke everything into being. Do you think your problem is too big for him? Of course it's not. So perspective, he had the perspective. He said, I am talking to the God of heaven. Secondly, not only the perspective, but there was a promise, as you see here in verse 5-2. He says, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. In this particular case, the, the promise that Nehemiah was probably thinking about was the very land of Israel that God had promised would be given to his people, the promised land. We have many promises through the scripture. And as we pray and we realize who we're talking to, understand what he has already said belongs to us because of the work and the power of Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of our God and who he is and how he loves us. He went to the cross because he saw our condition and knew that was the only way to free us, the only way to rescue us. And then thirdly, in this prayer in verses 6 and 7, there's a bold confession Look what he says here in verses 6 and 7. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servants praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. He didn't know these people personally. They were miles away. But he did know his heart. And he knew that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
that we're all in need of God in our lives. And he is praying from the understanding that I'm not the one who has it together. Only God does, and I need his help. And so, God, I'm crying out to you. So he moves from information. He has a godly reaction. This leads to intercession, and then he takes action. Notice in chapter 2, verse 5, he says to the king, If it pleases the king, I ask that you send me to Judah, that I may rebuild it. And the king says, How long will your journey be? And I love it, as it says uh, in the text, um, in, I, can't, I didn't write down the reference, I know somewhere in these two chapters, where it says, first he sat down and he wept, and then he knelt down to pray, and then he stood up to get to work. And it reminded me of Isaiah. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when the voice of the Lord is going out there, and um, he says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here my Lord, send me. He sees the need, and here's a guy that, you know, he had a powerful place. I'm sure he knew some people that he could get to go to, to do the job that needed to be done. But Nehemiah says, here I am, Lord. Send me. He wanted firsthand to be part of that. It reminds me of, you know, Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's, God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Here I am, Lord. I may not be much, but I'm yours. So let's go. And that was Nehemiah's heart. 2 Corinthians 16, 9, the first part, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward them. So the Lord's always looking for somebody who will say, here I am, Lord. Send me. It's about surrender. It's about saying, God, I'm not much, but I am yours. Remember when uh, Saul was blinded on the Damascus Road and man did his life change? And there were two questions that came from his mouth. The first thing, first question he asked was, Who are you, Lord? Man, that's a great question. Who is your Lord? It's a question everybody has to ask. And you know what? Whether we realize or not, it's a question that we will all answer. And it will be answered by who we give our allegiance to. What our purpose in life is. Where our hope lies. So who are you, Lord? And then there's the second question that Saul asked. What do you want me to do? And how many... How many come to Christ and they never ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? But spend time saying, Lord, here's what I want you to do for me. Because you are God and I'm your child and I need some help. And I don't think you're helping very much, Lord. Instead, we should say, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? I know you got something out there you want me to do. I'm not much, but I'm yours. So, Lord, send me. Then last, number five, is collaboration. In verse 9 of chapter 2, great verse, talks about this letter 
that was sent out that makes such a great difference in, in verse 8 that God was helping grant requests. In verse 9 it says, So they went to these governors and he gave them the king's letters and the king sent army officers and cavalry with him. So he goes in obedience to God but he doesn't go alone. And this is some awesome stuff. He is being accompanied by powerful people who have resources. And it's just a picture of what God does when God calls his people to work together for a common purpose, to accomplish his goal, to give us a, a, the information and a godly reaction and prayer that then becomes action and then turns into collaboration of working together for his purpose. As a matter of fact, um, he gets funding from the government. He gets needs, supplies, documentation, a military backup. Once it gets to the city, we find out in chapter 3, 38 individuals are named who work with Nehemiah. Forty different occupations gather to build the city. And they work together. Man, there, there is so much we can do together and so little we can do alone when God pulls us together for his work. And whereas I am thankful for technology and I'm grateful we can't be here, we can watch the service, but it's still not a real substitute for being together. And it's great that we sit together and we worship together but we are not just to sit together and worship together. At some point, we are to stand up and take action together for God's call as He directs us and as He leads us because we're designed for community, not for apathy. Now, um, as I close this message, have you been battling with spiritual apathy? I mean, I think we all go through seasons. Sometimes uh, seasons last longer than other times. The church of Ephesus struggled with apathy. What a great church, man. They would be like, you know, we say, this is the church. You know, we have a tendency, and we all do this, okay? Sometimes I grumble about this church or Cindy over here. And goes, you know, we all brag about our church. I'll brag our church over how great she's is, or how great, you know, and then boom. And look, I'm not saying we're not, it's a blessing. But, you know, it's not that we have a great church, we have a great body. We have a great Savior. We, 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 we have a, a great sustainer who walks with us, you know. And, and so, it's not that I don't want to brag on you guys, I just know that we can't go wrong by bragging here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, anyway, the church of Ephesus, listen to uh, it's so great, their resume here. They were pastored by Paul the Apostle. Then Timothy, his, um, the guy that he mentored, stepped in. Then the next pastor was John the Apostle. Then they had Aquila and Priscilla come in and do some seminars. How great is that? And then when revival came around, they had Apollos come in and preach. And that rascal could let it fly. So, I mean, they had quite a history. And yet, 
God gives him some great commendations in Revelation chapter 2. But then he gives him this rebuke. Jesus Christ himself says to the church at Ephesus, you have left your first love. It was apathy. That's what they struggled with. The pastor didn't run off with the church secretary. There wasn't a big scandal. There, there wasn't people stealing money. Hearts grew cold. Their problem was not something that happened outside. It was something that happened inside of their hearts. And, and anyway, turn with me as I close. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Great verse that is our closing that gives us hope in battling apathy. This is what Jesus said specifically to this great church whose love had grown cold and as they continued to struggle. It's chapter 2, verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. First words, remember. Man, if, if you know, your faith just seems kind of, mm, kind of dreary, you know. Remember. Remember when you first understood you were in trouble because, well, you know, you're a sinner. Well, join the gang, and so am I. But you found out that although the news was bad, there was good news. And by the way, to have good news, there has to first be bad news, okay? So you get the bad news that you're a sinner and that God is your enemy. This is tough stuff. But then you get the good news of the cross. This is what we need to remember. We need to go back to the cross. And as we remember the cross, we remember the hope that we really have. And that, and that the reason our hearts can't stay cold is because God's heart didn't stay in heaven. He came down here among us and he went to the cross for us to save us, to rescue us from our sins. That's what the scripture declares. So we have to remember. Man, and he's saying how far you've fallen. You have forgotten your Savior. You have forgotten the work of the cross. You have forgotten that you are forgiven. You have forgotten that you have been restored. You have forgotten that you are his child. You have forgotten the price that was fully paid for you. So remember, that's the first step. Secondly, what do you do about it? Repent. Oh, preacher, that sounds kind of negative. And I thought we were only supposed to be positive. Well, I'm telling you, you can't get positive till you get negative, till you realize that there is sin that needs to be repented of, that you've got to turn away from that direction. You have forgotten Him, so you need to remember Him. And by remembering Him, you repent of the fact that you have forgotten Him, that you've let your life drift away into no purpose. And that purpose needs to be reinstated. We need to remember, we need to repent. And then the result of that is that our lives will be renewed. Look at how the verse closes. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. <laughs> so what's he saying? He's saying, hey, if you don't repent, you're in trouble. 
your influence is going to be removed. You're just going to be a social club. You're not going to be a church that makes a real difference in heaven and God's kingdom. But, what's the opposite of that? If you do repent, things change. There's a, a newness. Remember, repent, and be renewed. That's the way apathy is dealt with. Let's pray. God, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Nehemiah, how you gave him the information, and that led to a burden that sent him right to prayer, and then that moved him to action, and then people worked together, and you were glorified through it all, and you still do that stuff today. And Father, if we are sitting in the place of spiritual apathy today, Father, if we are, would be members of the congregation of the church at Ephesus, God, may we remember and repent and be renewed. So, Father, I pray you would call us to this altar. I pray that you would call us to hear you. I pray that we would respond before you because there is where joy and hope and purpose is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In your name we pray. If God has called you, will you come? Just say yes to him, whatever he says.